Maybe you were taught in elementary school, like I was, that history moves in a straight line. Well, today we're going to talk about realigners. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. George Washington, the father of America. Abraham Lincoln, well, he freed the slaves. And for more recent American school children, Martin Luther King. It's all such a nice, neat way of teaching history through the great men theory. But as most of us have come to understand, there's a reason we are taught that way, because it ignores many inconvenient truths and side trips, detours. The old school method is what we were taught when I was in elementary school, that there's a straight line of progress. Powers that be always set things up so that new generations are filled with not just patriotism, but an aggressive nationalism. Yes, we won World War II. We are the best. Now it's our job to keep it up and impress <clears throat> upon the rest of the world our superiority as a nation. But of course, who we are, the strengths and weaknesses of our identity as America are hardly limited to such intentionally, uh, an intentionally constricted picture. As the 21st century continues to develop, we see more blatantly the efforts to keep a tight lid on what kids may be taught, which of course ensures the opposite effect. People see the right-wing clampdown and the hunger to really see the less than comfortable truth increases. And that's a good thing. With us today to talk about his new book, Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy is author Timothy Schenk. Timothy, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. <laughs> thanks for having me. Trying to do my part. Oh, the book is described as an eye-opening new history of American political conflict from Alexander Hamilton to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Timothy Schenk is professor of history at George Washington University, is a man of the left, as am I. He's co-editor of the left-wing magazine Dissent. He's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The London Review of Books, The Nation, of course, The New Republic, and Jacobin, among other publications. He's been a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at Washington University in St. Louis and received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and New America. In one blurb, Michael Lind points out that the book defies the fashionable bottom-up social history that's going on now and shows, yes, there is a centrality of leaders, men and women, outsiders and insiders alike. And he shows that it is possible to combine political engagement with respect for those who disagree. This book is a history that runs from the drafting of the Constitution to the storming of the Capitol, there, that's a lot of ground. The result is an entertaining and provocative reassessment of the American political tradition. Well, thanks again for being with us, Timothy Shank. It's an interesting title, Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. How did you come up with that title? And what do you see as the need for this yet another book on the history of America? Well, Realigners, uh, the that sort of keyword in the title refers to the concept really popular among a lot of political scientists of realignment, which is this idea that in the United States, every generation or so, there's a sort of concentrated period 
where political change occurs in rapid, rapid, rapid speed. And out of this process emerges a new governing coalition that sets the terms of debate for the next deck for the decades to come. So it's baked into this idea that in American politics, there tends to be what's called a sun party and a moon party. Yeah. There's one party that is the oh, yeah, is the sort of center of gravity around which the other orbits. And mm. now this is there's some political scientists who strongly believe this brilliant, brilliant proponent of the theory, Walter Dean Burnham, one of the great political scientists of the last century. But I would say that in over the last few decades, there have been a lot of sophisticated works pulling apart some of the grander claims of the theory. The idea that almost as if like through clockwork, new new majorities emerge and that they are the dominant coalition for decades to come and the other party is always in the shadows. That's overstated. But what I like about the idea of realignment itself is it just calls our attention to the fact that party coalitions matter. They change over time. And if you want to think about how American politics evolves, you have to think about how all the different pieces of the system fit together. So the voters, the political elites, the people paying for the process, the policies that emerge, actual changes in American society. So I wanted to take this idea of trying to see American politics as a whole, focusing it on the process of building new majorities. And then the little shift from realignment to realigners is looking at the people and the ideas that made those majorities possible. Because a lot of times political scientists, you know, this is a book that rests on an extensive literature in political science. It's not possible without it. But they tend to approach the subject armed with spreadsheets and precinct by precinct breakdowns of the electorate, which is incredibly useful. But I thought that there was something to be said for the ideas themselves, for the visions that help mobilize mm -hmm. coalitions, along with the parson hacks who help turn those visions into movements that can mobilize millions of people at the polls. So that's the broad impulse behind it. I would say, too, there's a bit of a contemporary concern in mind. One point just being that for basically my whole entire for my entire life, there has been neither a sun nor a moon party. We've had Democrats and Republicans vying for control. Typically, there are victories that are narrow and can be easily reversed at the next election. Mm. And I think that whatever side of the spectrum you stand on, Democrat, Republican, left, right, you can say that the failure of either party to build a durable majority takes a lot of existing problems in our constitutional structure and makes them a lot worse. So it leads to this sort of paradox of our moment where it simultaneously feels like everything is falling apart, but that nothing is ever changing, too. Wow, there's so much there. And yeah. in, you know, in opposition or, or difference to, in contrast, rather, to the idea of a straight line, it it sounds it's like an amoeba. It just moves in a whole bunch of different directions at the same time, and who knows what's going to happen. And I, that's one thing. Being involved in politics uh, for a very long time, I have come to learn that no matter what scientific methods uh, you may uh, look at things by and say, "Well, this could happen. This could happen. This could happen," it's always something unpredictable. You know, and that's what I love. That's what I love about it so much. Why it's sort of the energy that gets you to that can sustain you over a book project like this one is you're always going to be surprised election <laughs> to election. Yes. Cast your change. It's amazing. And to me, this pushes against what seems to be a major trend in my left wing progressive corner of the world over the last few years, which is a kind of static view of American history. Huh. I say in the introduction that there's been a kind of tendency in recent years to tell American history basically as a conflict between a kind of idealized blue and red, Amer idealized blue and a pathologized red America. So it's a story about multiracial democracy 
versus its enemies. And you kind of always know who the good guys are. You always know who the bad guys are. And the question is just, okay, given the balance of powers at one time, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And what I love about digging into the history of coalitions is it just surprises you how often alliances shift and how if we have a tendency to project backward the present uh, political divisions of today, you can see antecedents. Certainly they're there, but the story is a lot more complicated. So the trick is, how can you tell that more complicated story without having it just be a mess of different things? You know, who wants to read a book about amoebas? And for me, what was exciting was saying like, no, actually, the story of how you build winning coalitions, that's a narrative with as much drama as anything in American history. And so it's not about looking for the single skeleton key, whether it's racial domination, class oppression, maybe this sort of abiding liberal consensus that smothers dissent. No, like all those are pieces of the puzzle, but there's so much change even from election to election, that to me, they couldn't explain what was going on in the particulars. So instead of looking for the one answer to everything, I decided to tell a story about one question, how you build a majority, and the different answers to that question that people have come up with over time. And building majority, a, a, a democracy in a republic, we have sort of a democracy, but it's not a, a direct democracy. You have to build uh, coalitions and, and get the power, people in power, to, to make the changes. And it's, it's not a, a smooth, easy, straight-line picture. That's for sure. And it's described uh, quite a bit in this book, uh, Realigners. Uh, there are not only, you know, there's the usual suspects, of great men in American history. And in fact, you know, historians for many decades, if not centuries, have, you know, gone to it's great men that shape history. Well, so at this point, and they're not the only ones who realign, that's for sure. Let me ask about your definition of realigners as it comes to making a dent in American history, to making a change in American history. You say realigners except Two principles that seem contradictory at first glance, the inevitability of disagreement and the virtues of persuasion. Is that a key part of your definition of the world? Talk, uh, of the word. Talk about that, please. Absolutely. So this gets to an attempt to contribute to a conversation about democracy that I think a lot of us have been having over the last few years uh, for some obvious, perhaps Donald Trump-related yeah. reasons. Mm -hmm. now, what is it that not just like what should this system be, but how does it function in practice? How can we come up with something that's better than whatever we have now? And in particular, I think that there's been a lot of excitement, a lot of investment in what you could call the crisis of democracy industrial complex in the last, in, during the Trump era, which is a whole body of literature devoted to the idea that in sort of the crude form that you might see in, for instance, uh, MSNBC monologue, that there are these norms and institutions out there that are being threatened by the populist right and that our job is to defend them. And coming from my left-wing perspective, I think, yes, you know, like mm -hmm. I also think that right-wing populism is a serious threat, but I think we need to be just as attuned to transforming institutions as to defending them. And I worry that in the rush to build a pro-democracy coalition that stretches from Liz Warren to Liz Cheney, that we're going to miss an opportunity for a more fundamental transformation that I think is both stands a better chance of addressing the challenge to right-wing populism over the long haul and can actually do important good for people in our society today. So how we build that gets to the, – the, the problem is just that you can't get there by 
outlining the vision and expecting the people to come, you need to have a really hard-headed strategy for building majority. And that means accepting that you're never going to get everyone on your side as much as it would nice as I have chanted that people united will never be defeated. But unfortunately that's bullshit. The people will never be united, at least not in our <laughs> lifetimes. <Never. laughs> but there's a possibility for dividing the country in a way that leaves a majority on your side. And but and you have to accept that that division is part of the game. You have to pick who's going to be in your coalition, who's going to be out of it. But you also have to realize that there is not a majority waiting to be summoned just by saying the right policies that in your head you think the world should demand right now. You have to listen to people and you have to go put in the hard work of persuading. And so it's in that tension between accepting disagreement and also striving to get the coalition that you need to get the numbers that can push through reform, that's where the genius of politics happens. And I would think not just persuading, but listening as well. There's so many people on the left who, you know, despise the populist right. I don't like what they're doing. But to me, it's crucial that we listen to them and realize and and look at well, why did they vote for Trump? These are people who get screwed by <clears throat> the people they vote for, and yet they do it anyway. And why is that? I I think it's because I mean this is just my opinion. I think it's because they feel like they've been working hard all their lives, playing by the rules, and not getting ahead. If we on the left fail to listen to them and just treat them as enemies, I, I don't think that's a good way to build a new majority. Yeah, I became much more of a a lowercase d Democrat over the course of this book for exactly that reason. I just came to think that, listen, like I have my political views. They are important to me, obviously, Mm -hmm. but that I am on the left because I believe that ordinary people should have more power over their day to day lives, more say over how they live their lives. And that means that if there are people out there, like especially like especially working class people. So I think that as a leftist, I have an obligation to take the views that working class people have about how their life should be ordered very seriously. That doesn't mean I accept them in every particular, but it just says that you can't come in from like on your high horse to dic- trying to dictate right. how things will be. You have to listen yes. and then you do the work of persuading. But exactly, persuasion will only work if it begins with a place of sincere respect. You know, it's always going to be hard too, but this is the best shot we have rather than trying to hector or shame someone into agreeing with us. Uh, you've, <clears throat> you've done the impossible. You've learned from history. We never tried. We never seemed to learn from history. But you're right. Look, you know, being on a high horse, looking down on him, Hector, it doesn't work. People try that so often. People on the left, and you know, just within the the centrist Democratic Party, try that. <clears throat> it doesn't work. You got to figure out why. People oh, think- absolutely. And this is the centrist version is just like lecturing leftists to sit down and shut up <laughs> and not like raise your voice. No, we know what's going. We're in yeah, charge oh, here. Yeah. Just like go to your corners. So, yeah, and that's. Yeah, there are definite problems there as well. And I think that trying to, I think what runs through both of those dispositions is a kind of assumption that things will never change, that you don't have to worry about persuasion just because the way things are is the way things are, that is the way that things are always going to be. And especially in like democratic and left circles, the sense that if we're losing, it's because the system is rigged against us in some way. It's because of gerrymandering or it's because of some other fault in the broader system that can't be blamed on us. And I just think that's cope. Like, I don't buy it. I think that ultimately the problem facing our politics today is that even taking into account gerrymandering in the Senate and all the anti-democratic institutions that are built into the Constitution, which are real and annoying, and I think we should get rid of. But it comes down to the fact that neither party still is able to build a majority that's large enough to plow through those obstacles, which has happened in the past. 
And I yes. don't think that our politics is so distinctive today that it's impossible to imagine such a coalition emerging in the future. Aha. Uh-huh. And I had a colleague of yours on the show oh, a few months ago uh, uh, about uh, Michael Kazin, I believe it was, talk- talking about how we won. And it, he looks at how the Democrats have won over the last uh you know, 100, 120 years or so. Um, and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, uh, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Timothy Schenk, who's got a new book out. He's a, uh, a professor of history at George Washington University, where I would never be accepted back when I was a student. Uh, the book is... Re- I would accept you. <laughs> anyway, the book is called Realigners, Partisan Hacks, political visionaries, and the struggle to rule American democracy. And we're talking about how things actually can change. It's very complex. It's not a smooth, easy, straight-line picture. Uh, Timothy, in your introduction, you write that so far the 21st century has not been going well for the political elite. And after describing some traumas, you say, add it all together, and you might decide that the country is careening toward a full-blown legitimacy crisis. End of quote. Do we have a government whose political authority derives from the public's consent or not? Is it legitimate? I think that a fact that, especially my side side of the debate, the left has to accept is we basically do. That I think the system more or less reflects actually existing public opinion, not perfectly, obviously, but compared to a lot of alternatives that have existed before or different systems that are out there right now, it's not bad at conveying uh-huh. what the public thinks. Uh-huh. Now, of course, now the, the one point that um, as left as I'm ob- obligated to point out, as mm-hmm. the great political scientist E.E. Schatzschneider observed, the problem with the vision of a sort of united people singing in like our heavenly choir is that the heavenly choir happens to sing with a distinctly upper class accent. <laughs> Clearly, money it translates into power and that gives the wealthy disproportionate influence over the system. Not denying that at all. But it doesn't mean that democracy is just a sham. I think that's the too easy cop-out that a lot of people on my side make. It's like, no, 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 there's some alternative system where if we just got conditions X, Y, Z right, the people would understand their interests, they would express it the way that they should, i.e. the way that I should think about the world, yeah. and then every problem would be fixed. And what I want to try and do is acknowledge both like the very real existence of significant disparities of power. Like My reason for existing politically is the belief that we should level those distinctions as much as possible, but saying that that is not everyone in the world, everyone in our country's uh, position right now. So that work of persuasion involves, as we were just talking about, reckoning with actually existing American public opinion and trying to bring folks over to our side. But the system, you know, when you have significant voter turnout like we do today, Mm -hmm. yes, there are all sorts of ways it could be better, but political scientists tell us there's no reason to believe that there is a kind of silent radical left majority out there just that for some reason has just given up on politics. Hmm. There are people who can be persuaded, people can be mobilized, but it's a lot more complicated than some of the sort of easy stories about a public that's just, I don't somehow duped into false consciousness, what have you believe. Uh, well, it would have been interesting had Bernie Sanders been the nominee, but we'll never yeah. know. We'll never know if there was that majority there. I, I, I can't help but think that, that you're correct. And there are lots of people today, as you know, certainly, we all know, who people who have just given up. They've given up on our system. They throw up their hands. They, they may not even vote. But I, we had a pretty darn good turnout uh, in November 2022. Is it true that while the people... The citizens, of course, have a right to vote and kind of an obligation to vote. 
perhaps there's an elite above it all that continues to rule, as a lot of people feel like, oh, just give up. The elite has all the power. There's nothing I can do. Did America's framers talk about democracy, but really intend an oligarchy to be on a check on that democracy? And there's a lot of, I mean, this wide variety of opinion among the founders of this country. So, I mean, yes, some talked about, uh, you know, preferring an oligarchy to be a check on democracy. What, what did they intend with regard to democracy? That's a big question. So this book started, Realigner, starting out as a kind of new history of the American political elite, really had the idea for it the morning after Trump's election, and it was born out of fury that Trump had mm-hmm. won in the first place, and a sense that, okay, okay, there's going to be a lot of books that look down, cast blame on the people who vote for Trump, I have some problems with that story, but I'm just going to put that to the side. I want to look at the broader history that made something like Trump possible, and I want to focus my gaze at the top, the people who have power and, as Spider-Man taught us all, therefore have responsibility. What was their part of the story? As I worked on the book, I moved toward this idea of realignment, toward majority making, toward coalition building, Mm -hmm. because I came to believe that this ability to bind millions of people together in a majority, this was what the distinctive fact of modern democracy, as opposed to a sort of idealized, ancient, pure Athenian democracy where the people vote for themselves. That's not our system. You know, we are the, we, it's not pure democracy where people vote on policies. This is a representative democracy where people vote yes. for our ruling class. So I thought this was a key distinction of the system, especially because in a country of the size scale of the United States, mm. this means binding millions of people together in a single majority, which is an extraordinary power, mm-hmm. a unique one to my democracy. And then I came to believe that why this is especially important is that, to my mind, if there is any realistic chance for evening that skewed balance of power in modern society, there's any chance for doing that at scale, it's going to come from building a majority that comes close to creating a sort of loophole in the iron law of oligarchy so that mobilized majorities can, in fact, tilt the balance of power away from the ruling elite toward ordinary people. It's happened in various ways in the past, and it can happen in the future. Mm. And what was striking to me thinking about the founding of the country, 1780s and 1800s, is that a version of this discovery of moving from just thinking of the political elite as this class by itself that can govern more or less without public interference to discovering the power of majorities, that's the story of the early American founding. So that's the story of how American politics is transformed during the 1780s into the 1800s. And you can see this in Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, authors of the Federalist Papers, who are quite clear in there, and uh, the founding fathers generally, behind closed doors in Philadelphia when they're hammering out the Constitution. They are explicit on the point that will they see what they're doing as an alternative to either oligarchy or pure democracy. They're looking for a third way that will be legitimate in the eyes of the in the eyes of the public. When you have, how can you have a government? The question goes. How can you have a government when you can't just appeal to the divine authority of kings? Well, the sanction of public opinion that's going to be a really, really powerful tool for legitimation. But the hope was that the public would more or less sign off through elections every couple of years, then go back to its own business. And of course, this was a constricted public, limited to white men. Mostly property owners, although that's actually pretty broad category, and it's an exceptionally broad category by the standards of the 1780s. But still, the core idea here, even putting aside the, to our eyes, radically constricted nature of the suffrage, the really almost cynical idea, sort of this brutal realism of the founders, assumed that, listen, we can have the public, they'll vote, it's fine, because it's not going to really change the system in a fundamental way. James Madison, for instance, he was fine with the, with the Electoral College, but his first choice was popular vote, having the president be selected by popular vote. Mm. Why? Because he thought that the more people were voting, the broader the context, 
the contest, the easier it would be for a tiny elite to sift to the top so that the people would be choosing from members of what were described as a natural aristocracy. And that's really the ideal of the 1787-1788 moment, that the public will choose from members of a natural aristocracy who will then go about their work, govern in the interests of a people who don't know how to govern for themselves. Now, what changes over the 1790s is that a civil war erupts within that natural aristocracy hmm. so that Hamilton and Madison find themselves on opposite sides of an emerging partisan war. Hamilton for the Federalists, Madison for the Republicans or Democratic Republicans, as they are also known. So what happens as a consequence? How does this war get resolved? Well, at first, the Federalists have the upper hand because they have George Washington on their side. So the unique authority of George Washington is enough to settle the terms of the debate at first. But then what the Republicans discover is that by helping to mobilize this majority, again, this is a constricted, it's nothing like the system that we would know today, or even the system that would exist just a few decades later. But by pushing into electioneering, by trying to mobilize some portion of the public on your side, they were able to settle the civil war within the natural aristocracy in their favor. So that it is the emergence of a majority coalition that is able to install Republicans in power and push Federalists to the side. And so you can see, even within the lifetimes of these founders, just James Madison, the discovery of the power of a majority, which is going to set the stage for all of American history to come. Absolutely. And there's, in theory, the U.S. Supreme Court is unaffected by public opinion, but that is a bull. They are affected by public power is affected by public opinion. They, they so that there's some of both. There's, there's, it sounds like Timothy. What you're saying is that this neither pure democracy nor pure oligarchy that it somehow works <clears throat> in opposition to each other, but also works together somehow. Fascinating. Yeah, pure democracy in a mass society would be chaos. Pure oligarchy is not sustainable. Yeah. The system exists. So both the capacity for it to change and its frustrating resistance to reform is both tied up. Both of those facts are tied up with this compromise measure. And that more than anything else you learn about in civics class, more than checks and balances, more than all like the an independent judiciary, more than all the doodads that go into the Constitution, mm -hmm. just the fact of grounding this system on the consent of the governed, that is the great sort of secret to the durability of our system today. Again, and it's a secret to what's fr so frustrating in our moment. It's also the secret to the possibility that could be changed. And obviously, we saw that in the November 2022 uh, election. It did change. The people, the people spoke. I think it, you know, not everybody, obviously, but a majority uh, spoke in rejection of Trumpism. Uh, obviously, the reproductive rights issue was rather large, too. But that affects people's rights. But people... People have a little bit of the power. It's it's not people are not powerless. A lot of times people feel like, oh, I give up. I can't. I don't have any power. But people do have power, and obviously it showed. And elections are obviously not the only way to make change in the American uh, system. Just putting a vote on there. There's culture. There's politics. As we now know, you know the uh, the right wing is is focused on a culture war which connects with people. It gets people on their side. Um, and maybe you can talk just a little bit about uh, where we are with regard to the culture war. And, and I mean, you talk, there's various people in the book who are involved sort of pregenitors of the culture war. Uh, maybe we can talk about uh, the place of, of using the, the culture war in, uh, in making a political uh, change. 
So one point I want to make at the start is that sure. there are some folks on the left who don't like the idea of like talking about cultural issues in the first place because mm. they argue that, say, for instance, if abortion is described as a cultural issue, that they say that it diminishes something, that it's almost it's dismissive. And they would point out that, in fact, if you are a woman or any a pregnant person, that having a child is something that will have a remarkable economic influence over your life. It is a deeply material issue. And I obviously agree with all of that. Yeah. But one point I want to make, though, is that instead of thinking about issues as material and cultural just based on their intrinsic character, I think it can be really useful to ask, OK, if you have a given issue in your mind, if that or rather if an issue if an issue is put before the public, how does it divide the public? And there are some issues with so which is connected to the idea of what coalitions does it make possible? And there are some issues, for instance, the minimum wage. Well, when the minimum wage is put up for debate, it implicitly divides the public into people who think they can benefit from minimum wage or people who think they'll lose from it. Or broadly, are you pro-business, are you pro-boss, or are you pro-worker? Right? That's a suggestion. Or let's say income taxes. You put an idea for raising capital gains taxes. Well, then that divides the public into people who would benefit from raising capital gains taxes and people who would lose from it. Mm. Those seem to me pretty clear economic divisions. Abortion, though, different story. Because when you put abortion before the public, it divides the public into, well, how do you feel about is – it, is it an issue of gender? Are you thinking about the real question as a man, as a woman? Are you thinking about it as a Catholic or as someone who's secular? What exactly is that division? Now, we saw in the election in 2022 that abortion can be a, a fantastic issue for mobilizing a majority. But the question is just what type of majority gets mobilized? And is it one that sees itself as divided along economic lines or is it one that sees itself divided along? I think it's fair to say if you are thinking about yourself – as a woman or as a man rather than as a worker, as a boss, that's ah. fair to describe as a different type of division. They sort of ec and economic versus cultural is not bad to me as a gesture at that distinction. And why this matters is that the great victories for the sort of New Deal order, this moment when the American welfare state, as we know it, coheres from roughly the 1930s into the 1960s, take place at a time where for the only sustained period in American history, the electorate is divided largely along economic lines. Yes. Not exclusively, there's lots of caveats, but the norm in American history is for the electorate to be divided along a jumble of cultural lines, which create a mix in both coalitions, because there normally is, there might not always be a sun and a moon party, but there's almost always a two-party division. And this is distinct from the rest of the world, where you might have a bunch of different parties mm -hmm. who go compete at the polls, and then the leaders and a parliamentary system sort out their majority afterwards. Israel, for instance, great case in point of that structure. In our system, where you only have two parties to choose from, most of the time those parties are just a mess of cross-class coalitions that are divided chiefly along these kind of cultural lines. It might be Catholic versus Protestant. It might be where you fall in the red-blue wars of today. All sorts of variations. The New Deal moment is different because it's the time when those economic divisions loom largest. Yes. And I have to point out, this isn't just in the United States. This is in lots of the wealthy industrialized world. This mid-century period is a moment when economic divisions loom large. That changes. Now, it is the change you can say if you wanted to, that it was underway even in that peak of the 1930s moment, but it really comes into focus in the 1960s. That's when a new cluster of issues from feminism, civil rights, Vietnam, questions about patriotism associated with that, secularism, run down the list. All the stuff that when we say cultural war, I think this is, these are the issues that pop into people's heads. This is when those emerge to gain a new type of salience. And it's the emergence of those issues that scrambles the economic binaries that had built mid-century politics and that put leftists like us in a really tricky position. And I think the most tragic part of it is almost having to choose not 
entirely between those goals, but about which ones you prioritize at a given moment and what's the best way, faced with the constraints that are imposed on you by the American electorate, what's the best way of building a majority that can push through change you believe in on as many fronts as possible? It's got to be done. And, and class, you know, economics, those of us on the left uh, tend to think that economics is really, uh, it's the way to, uh, th that people are, in fact, divided. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest uh, today is Timothy Schenk, author of a new book, Realigners, Par Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. Interesting chapter titles is uh, uh, the introduction, The Golden Line, <clears throat> followed by Guardians, Partisans, Liberators, Organizers, the Party of Everyone as an interlude, Prophets, Insiders, Insurgents, and Politicians. Uh, there's a lot to talk about for sure. And in the chapter on Partisans, you write that, quote, the rise of the professional politician was part of a revolution in American democracy. And that, quote, it turned electioneering into entertainment. Of course, Donald Trump is the most recent uh, beneficiary of this transformation, this realignment. How did Martin Van Buren benefit from this transformation uh, into entertainment? And in what ways is he a realigner? So he's the man behind the scenes of the emergence of Jacksonian democracy, which is both a kind of heir and a kind of replacement to that original Jeffersonian Republican coalition. And where Jackson is the charismatic face of the movement, Van Buren is the partisan operative behind the scenes who lays out the vision for both the electoral coalition that could turn this Jacksonian majority into an electoral powerhouse. He sees that before Jackson does. And he also has his hands in the making of this basic tools of partisan politics. So things like the making of a partisan press or a permanent party machine. Van Buren is part of a generation that sees that and pushes it into overdrive. And it's the combination of Jackson as the face of the movement and Van Buren as the operative behind the scenes that turns Jacksonian democracy into such a force. Mm -hmm. I would just note, though, so this is a story that people know, but was why I felt like I had to, why it was worth devoting a chapter to Van Buren is that he is not just the intel, essentially the intellectual architect behind Jacksonian democracy, but, and who will, he serves as Jackson's vice president, wins the presidential election on his own right in 1836, but after losing his second term, he wanders in the political wilderness for a while and then returns a few years later as the nominee of the Free Soil Party for president of the United States. Free Soil Party, forgotten today, but it was a key moment in the mainstreaming of what was described as political abolitionism. The idea that an anti-slavery majority could be built out of the northern states. This is the seeds of the Republican Party are sown for some complicated reasons by people like Andrew Jackson, the sorry, by people like Martin Van Buren, the face of Jacksonian democracy. To me, that connection between an aggressively white supremacist Jacksonian democracy yes. and the emergence of an anti-slavery coalition says so much about the, both the limits and the promise of the American political tradition as it stood in the 19th century. It is quite a century that goes on there, that is for sure. And another name is Charles Sumner. He's not particularly well-known today, even less than Martin Van Buren, I would guess. In what ways was he a realigner? What was his vision, Charles Sumner? So where Van Buren is the conscious creator of what becomes Jacksonian democracy, who ends up kind of stumbling into this anti-slavery project, Sumner is the person who gave it his life. He is in the Senate 
from the 1850s into the 1870s. During that time, it, for, except for a brief exception during Reconstruction, it is an almost entirely white body. And Sumner views himself and is seen by many African-Americans as the voice of black America mm. in the Senate. And this is he is the leading intellectual defender of the anti-slavery cause, someone who, with the same amount of clarity that Van Buren outlined a Jacksonian coalition in the 1820s, Sumner saw the making of a republic, what becomes a Republican Party, different from the Jacksonian Republicans. This is the Abraham Lincoln Republicans. He sees how someone like Abraham Lincoln could be elected president. Now, Sumner is too extreme to ever win that nomination for himself. Mm -hmm. But at a moment when someone, a figure like Abraham Lincoln is saying, like, listen, I oppose slavery, but I'm a Whig. And this is what this is just what realism means. And there are hardcore abolitionists who say, listen, Charles, like your heart's in the right place. But this country is screwed. We're never going to be able to pushed through anti-slavery constitutionally, we should probably just get the North to secede and wait for the South to sort itself out. Sumner is a leading force in what I mentioned with Van Buren is described as political abolitionism. The idea that there is a lowercase d democratic solution to the problem of slavery that could be pushed through by mobilizing a free state majority. Mm. And he is someone who devotes his life to pushing through that majority, not just because he thinks slavery is wrong, but because he thinks racism is wrong. And that's actually an important wow. distinction because there's a lot of white supremacist anti-slavery anti-slavery advocates in the 1850s. That's a key part of the Republican coalition. Sumner sees the possibility for the United States to become a multiracial democracy at a time when that is a distinctly minority position, especially among white Americans. And he devotes his life to achieving it. And both the successes of the movement, the extraordinary success of emancipation, combined with the tragic failures of Reconstruction, speak to a, this recurring thing for me, what is possible and what's constrained at any given moment in American history. Wow. But he's, in a sense, like, taking that American political tradition and trying to bend it to its radical extreme, the most it could handle. And unfortunately, tragically, he's broken by it at the end of his life, but not until after contributing to an enormous transformation that makes possible greater gains down the road. Boy, it sounds it sounds like you have some uh, degree of enthusiasm about this. I, that's that's good. It's good to have an author be enthusiastic about what he or she is writing about, and it's fascinating that it does seem like Charles Sumner remains ahead of not only his time but our time today. Actually, the idea of of equality in a multicultural uh, uh, nation or not nation country really a bunch of different nations within and, and all making up uh, one. One political body, one polity. It's, uh, wow, interesting stuff and, and the changes that he made. And talk about changes. People pretty much have heard of the Gilded Age, the last Gilded Age, I like to call it, back in the 1890s, before the current Gilded Age, which I think is actually more extreme than it was back then. But one very well-known figure from that time, of course, is William Jennings Bryan, who who came down on the side of, of working people, of farmers, against the uh, East Coast, uh, uh, you know, money uh, people, uh, the, you know, gold being, you know, based on gold and, and just allowing paper money to happen there. But that, w that was a class issue for sure. In the chapter on organizers, Mark Hanna figures prominently, less well-known than William Jennings Bryan. T please tell us why it's important to know about Mark Hanna's version of realignment. Well, because you have to understand not just why William James Bryan succeeded, but why he failed and why the populist vision didn't come to pass. Because that populist vision, they were the self-described party of the people who called on Americans of all working Americans across the lines of division to unite behind 
overthrowing American plutocracy. This is at the height of the Gilded Age, also during a period of brutal economic downturn that starts in 1893 and runs into 1896 and after when James Bryan, William James Bryan is uh, nominated as a Democrat. He's, he's a Democrat, but he's friendly to the populace. And this is a moment when it seems as if populists might become for the industrial age what Republicans had been for the age of slavery, so that they could be populist in the, or a populist-defied Democratic Party could do to industrial capitalism what Republicans did to that older system, be an agent of fundamental transformation. And the thing is that a multiracial cross-class majority does emerge in the 1890s. It's a majority that breaks out of a partisan stalemate mm. that had descended on American politics during and after Reconstruction. But it wasn't the People's Party that the actual majority that emerges and that really does help set the trend. This is a case where a strong version of realignment theory makes sense. A majority that is huge and that does set the terms of American politics for decades to come, it emerges. And it's the Republican Party of Mark Hanna, a party that solidifies the transition of Republicans from Charles Sumner's Party of Freedom to Mark Hanna's Party of Business and Prosperity. Because what Hanna, who is the campaign manager for, Williams, for um, William McKinley, who's Jennings Bryan's opponent, the Republican opponent in 1896, mm -hmm. um, Hanna goes on to win election um, as a senator from Ohio in his own right. He becomes a kind of prime minister for McKinley in the Senate, while also being mm -hmm. the sort of basically the head of the Republican Party. In a sense, Hanna is to this what emerged this new Republican majority, what Martin Van Buren had been to the Jacksonian coalition, except where Van Buren said he was organizing the people in this campaign against a sort of specter of a federalist neo-Hamiltonian reemergence. Hannah is happy to say that he believes essentially what's good for business is what's good for America. Mm -hmm. And he helped build a majority out of it that includes significant sections of the working class. So the question here is how in the middle of a vicious economic downturn at the height of the Gilded Age, Republicans essentially prove that industrial capitalism can be reconciled with mass democracy. This was an open question at the time, by the way, because okay. this is a time where look across, look across the Atlantic, you can see that socialist movements are on the march. It's a question that Hannah takes very, very seriously. He's concerned about the threat of socialism in the United States, but he sees a, he sees a way to bring together working class, middle class, elite voters behind a defense of American capitalism that he says will benefit everyone more than the alternative. And it's in the legitimation of industrial capitalism and the breaking of the populist party that you see the making of Mark Hanna's new majority. And to me, it's just striking that as yeah. a historian, I can go to the library and there are shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of books on the populist. And you can learn about their successes and you can also learn about why they failed. But there's a very slender literature on mm. what Republicans were doing in the 1890s and what happened after. Because I think the assumption is more that populists failed and you can tell that story if you want to. But I was concerned with how Republicans succeeded. Uh -huh. What did they do right? Because you can't just assume that this was a problem that was going to sort itself out. And when you start with that lens in mind, then you can tr ask a whole lot of new questions as opposed to these still important questions of, you know, what did Brian do? What did Democrats do? What did populists do? But shifting to thinking of Republicans not just as benefiting from Democratic failures, but of having a positive vision of their own. I think that helps make sense of the period. Republicans with a positive vision of their own. Whoa, unbelievable. But, you know, it's in all seriousness, that is very impressive because, as you say, there's all kinds of books about, you know, populism. But what it sounds like what Mark Hanna was, was talking about is 
what did emerge and makes a lot of sense and that uh, capitalism and democracy coexisting somehow. Not just in the United States, but around the world. So you can see being presented with clarity in 1896, Mm. what will be in a sense of the terms of debate for politics down to now. And when I say are again, I mean not just American politics, but politics across the industrialized world, essentially. Fascinating. And it goes on and, and there are certain, it's important to be able to look at history and learn the the right things, the things that really matter and that affect us today and how it really turned out, rather than spending a heck of a lot of time figuring out, you know, not just what went wrong, but just trying to learn the right lessons can give us better tools to exist today. And so far, what you've been, you the people you and I have been talking about have been all of the male persuasion. Uh, tell us, please, about Alice Paul and Ruth Hannah McCormick as, as realigners. So Ruth Hannah McCormick follows naturally on Mark Hannah because, as the name mm-hmm. suggests, uh, she was his daughter. And they, Alice Paul and Ruth Hannah McCormick take up two sides of a debate among advocates of women's suffrage. The question is, how do you achieve change? Mm. And Paul is a master of coming up with attention-grabbing uh, publicity gambits that, by staking a radical claim, by asserting the presence of women, help draw focus to the cause. Ruth Hannah McCormick has a different perspective. She's very much her father's daughter. She has the same genius for political organizing that her father did. Wow. And she applies that to working within the system. So she is essentially that cigar-chomping machine hack politician of every character's vision. She's that inside one of the body of like one of the richest women of her time, a sort of child of the American elite, who believes that the problem that women first one of her first goals in life is winning women the right to vote Mm -hmm. then as soon as that's done her goal is turning women into republicans she moves seamlessly from oh there's a bit of a gap but over the course of a decade she moves from helping contribute to winning the battle for suffrage not by defining suffrage as a radical claim but by Mm -hmm. defining it as a normal one a conservative one that can work within the system Mm. to becoming one of the early women representatives in congress and if not for the Great Depression, had stood a very good chance of becoming the first woman senator when she ran in 1930. Again, she unfortunately, this is 1930. She has the misfortune to be running as a Republican during Herbert Hoover's collapse. Oops. But she was, <laughs> if from helping bring suffrage to pass to working with the system to advance her own career, an instance of a kind of conservatism that was adaptable and flexible enough that it could bring through something as potentially revolutionary as women's suffrage, and then turn it into just another contributor to the Republican majority. Fascinating. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about how democracy has worked, how it has survived. Our guest today is uh, author Timothy Schenk, a professor of history at George Washington University. His new book is Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. And one of the interesting things that, that separates America, I think, from many of the other Western modern nations is the fear of socialism. People, I've heard it said that once people hear the word socialism, they stop thinking. In the early 20th century, Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party were real factors. In most other Western countries, it was the, the word socialism didn't freak out so many. It was a legitimate force. Why not here? I mean, he ran for president. He got a lot of votes. Debs did. Why has socialism not had its appeal here? Does it? Is it because? And this, I've wondered about this. People don't have class 
solidarity here. They don't have a sense of, of class struggle, that there's no class here, that people believe, uh, as Ruth Hannah McCormick uh, was able to uh, make, you know, push forward, that we can all participate in the economic system as well as in the democratic system. Uh, what, what about that, uh, why socialism has, you know, not worked here, gone over like a lead balloon, basically? So my supervisor in graduate school and the chief intellectual influence in my life, my personal favorite all-time American historian is Eric Foner. And oh, Eric wow. has huh. a wonderful essay that he wrote, I think in the early 1980s. So it's, it's actually pretty prescient um, on exactly this question. You know, the why is there no socialism in the United States question? And he runs through the familiar responses, which go through the gamut from the fact that having prosperity does help. You know, it's on mm -hmm. the left. It's not, you're, you're not going to make yourself popular by saying like, oh, prosperity is, and cap, the sort of success of, relative success of capitalism in the United States takes the appeal out of socialism. And I agree that's a reductive account by itself, but it is worth noting that the time in the United States when American history, when we do come closest to socialism is the Great Depression. And mm -hmm. what defines the depression? The lack of that prosperity. So it's not a constant, the United States is not the land of infinite abundance for all, but it is a factor. Also important is the fact that unlike in many other countries, the United States develops mass and mass democracy before industrial capitalism. So look across again, look across the pond, see what's going on in Europe and the campaign for oh, universal suffrage and the campaign for unionization and the campaign for socialism, it can all proceed together. That's not the case in the United States. So it scrambles those normal divisions. You also have the fact of racial conflict and along with many other divisions in a large and diverse country, you've got those anti-democratic institutions that are built in the constitution that I referred to earlier. All of this is a factor along with state repression, although of course that's a factor in Europe as well. But one point that Eric makes, which I think is really well taken, is that the question would be more pressing if we continue to see vibrant socialist movements across the world over the course of the 20th century, and mm. I would add now into today. But the fact that socialism, socialist parties, their victories are tentative, and the story of the last 50 years is of either their struggles to retain support or their outright disappearance, it suggests that the assumption that democracy will inevitably produce a robust socialist movement might be misplaced, and that there were contingent factors that made its rise, especially in Europe, which I've said multiple times here, and it's like typically the idea that people have in their heads when they're referring to the sort of why no socialism question, you know, but basically why is the United States not like Germany? Well, you can look at the struggles that socialist parties have had, or for instance, the Labour Party in the UK, which many would say is now the name is the same, but has essentially become a British equivalent of the Democratic Party, so mm -hmm. that the distance between the two, not so great. So that the United States might have just taken a different path, but that there has been a convergence later. And one recurring theme is the, across much of the world, the absence of that type of explicit class-based movement, drawing support for a left-wing agenda rooted in solid working class majorities. So I think when you have that context in mind, it makes the failure of an aggressive socialist movement to emerge in the United States, at least as a majority party, less of a puzzle than it might have seemed a century ago. It is good to understand how we got here and, and where we are. And one of your chapters, as I say, is on insurgents. And one of the people in that chapter, very interesting people, uh, is, who's not all that well known t today, Phyllis Schlafly. Um, I, I wonder if, you, talk about where she fit in at the time and the long-term effect 
today of Phyllis Schlafly's effort to realign American politics. She was a big influence. Talk about her, if you would, please. So we were talking earlier about how the emergence of what, for lack of a better term, you could shorthand as culture war issues in the 1960s, that that's a key factor in breaking apart the New Deal coalition, turning American politics from this economically divided system where workers tend to vote for Democrats, middle class, especially as you go up the income ladder, upper class voters tend to support Republicans. In a sense, a politics divided between the AFL, CIO and Democrats on one side and the Chamber of Commerce and Republicans on the other, how that has given way to a politics of Fox News and Republicans on one side and MSNBC and Democrats on the other. And there's some connection between the two, but you're in a very different world with very different coalitions. Well, one of the great representatives of this of this change is Phyllis Schlafly, who sees early on the potential for those cultural war issues to fracture the New Deal coalition and pins her hope on the idea that a new majority can merge out of this that would displace both Democrats at the national level and these sort of hated, moderate, uh -huh. liberal Republicans uh -huh. within her own party. She sees herself as part of an effort to speak for the grassroots against a bipartisan elite that has nothing like the interests of the American people in mind. And that is her great project, using those cultural issues to split apart the Democratic coalition and to take over the Republican Party from within. And if you're looking to pave a road from the Republican Party of Dwight Eisenhower and Joe McCarthy to the Republican Party of Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, she is someone who will take you right there because she is there in the 1950s, and she is there in 2016, dying with cancer, spending her last months in life vigorously campaigning for Donald Trump, finishing a book, The Conservative Case for Trump, that will be published, I think, the week after her death, and then land in the New York Times top 20 bestselling list that same week. So that is the story of Phil Schaffee right there, is essentially the making of that new Republican Party and really a new type of American politics. And it certainly was effective. And I, I would like to ask this chapter on insurgents. It starts off, it's it's some really fun uh, uh, writing, I must say. I wonder if you could read the first paragraph from your chapter on insurgents, which includes uh, Phyllis Schlafly. Actually, can I cheat and read the first two? Sure. Okay. All right. The stars were waiting for the show to start. Chairs pulled close enough that their knees could touch. As a snippet from a Brandenburg concerto played, the camera panned to William F. Buckley Jr., the National Review editor, affecting his usual shabby gentility, as if he had rushed to the studio after a three-martini lunch at the Cirque. <laughs> Viewers tuning in to Firing Line would have recognized the woman with the upswept blonde hair to Buckley's left as Phyllis Schlafly. Leader of the campaign against the Equal Rights Am Amendment, Buckley's ally in the conservative movement, and one of the most polarizing figures in American life. Decades before the term was coined, Schlafly perfected the art of trolling. Wielding domestic bliss like a machete, she depicted herself as a happily married wife and mother. Obliging journalists reported that she breastfed all six of her children and th taught them to read before they started school. The problem with feminism, she insisted, was that it deprived women of the joy she had found. I don't see that my opponents succeed in making themselves or the people around them happy, she said. I don't see that they have fulfillment, happy marriages, or the wonderfully successful children that I have. During her fight against the ERA, Schlafly took to opening rallies by thanking her husband for letting her come and speak. Mm. I always like to say that, she explained, because it makes the libs so mad. <laughs> she was good, and, and people don't often think of her. And, and you talk to uh, the uh, Generation Z or whatever they're called these days, I don't think they know about her, but she had a big influence. So many factors that we may not be aware of that go into shaping where we are today. Is it possible, in your opinion 
that America might have, as you put it, a genuine democracy where the public was brought into serious debates, brought into serious debates over the common good, not distracted by empty symbolic warfare. In other words, again yours, can politics be more than a way for the few to exploit the many? Are there hopeful examples? One thing I want to mention before I go is we actually saw, we haven't yet discussed, uh, and there's a lot to talk about, but my person, and this is my way of answering your question, my personal favorite research find in the book was stumbling across, with the help of Dave Garrow, this brilliant historian, biographer Barack Obama, a 250-some uh-huh. page book manuscript that Barack Obama co-authored when he was in law school basically outlining a program for transforming American politics. And this is a right. manuscript that he and his friend, uh, his co-author, Rob Fisher, who is an economist, um, they intended on turning it into a book. Sort of life got busy. They ended yeah. up doing other things. But by my count, maybe five people, including Barack Obama, have read the whole thing. Um, I'm one of them. And I thought this was a great opportunity to use this as a really detailed explanation for what Barack Obama wanted to achieve so that we could measure how what turned out against his intentions. And what was exciting Mm. for me is that the vision outlined for how to transform America that Obama outlines in the book is a direct descendant of a program that is most closely associated with one of my great political heroes, uh, Bayard Rustin, who Uh, was mm -hmm. a key organizing figure in the civil rights movement. He's the person more than any single other who made the March on Washington happen in 1963 and who, in the wake of both the March's success and then Lyndon Johnson's re-election in 1964, writes this brilliant article called From Protest to Politics that says the future of both the civil rights movement and American democracy depends on whether we can turn what he calls the March on Washington Coalition, Mm. an alliance of working-class people across the color line, sympathetic white liberals, religious supporters, as many people as possible, into a vehicle for essentially social democratic change. Going back to what I was saying at the beginning, my more vernacular way of saying social democracy is another way of just saying leveling the balance of power in American society and redistributing income in a more equal direction. You know, that's my great dream. I think it would do so much for our country. It sounds banal, but I really believe it. And I think that Rustin's approach, which involves leaning into economic issues that can bind together a majority around shared interests mm. that then leads to not just defending the institution, the system as it is, but changing it in fundamental ways that could do the most for the people that Rustin was concerned with and that Barack Obama was concerned with. This goes back to him. In his transport, in his manuscript, he says, essentially, the people I'm most concerned with, the people that I want to go into politics to help are the people who I saw as a community organizer in Chicago. They are overwhelmingly black and by definition poor. They're struggling economically and they're struggling with a culture that feels like it's breaking apart around them. How can we help them? How can we take a system that is not designed with their interests in mind and bend resources in their favor? And the answer he comes up with is the same one that I've been hammering on about for this entire hour, which is building a majority that can push through structural change that redistributes money and power from those who have it to those who have it to people who don't. And Obama's telling, which I find completely persuasive, is that this is the single best way to help the people he was working with in Chicago. Now, I think one of the great tragedies of my lifetime is that Obama, who I regard as the most talented politician of his generation and someone who I realized after reading this manuscript starts from a place very, very much like my own, that he was unable to fulfill fulfill that vision as president. But I think that 
the vision that motivated Rustin and then inspired the young Barack Obama politics, that is still what American democracy at its best looks like. And I think that we can get there. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be difficult. But that promise is worth sacrificing for. Fascinating book, Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. Thank you so much for being with us, Timothy Shank. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.